أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين الحمد لله الذي هدانا لهذا وما كنا لنهتدي لولا أن هدانا الله ثم الصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء وسيد المرسلين وشفيء المذنبين سيدنا ونبينا أبي القاسم محمد اللهم صل على محمد وآل محمد والصلاة والسلام على أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين المعصومين المدلومين المنتجبين لا سيما مولانا وسيدي صاحب الأسر والزمان روحي وعرواه العالمين له الفداه وعجل الله تعالى فرجه الشريف ولعنة دائمة على عدائه من الآن إلى قيام يوم الدين ما بعد رب شرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحلل أقدة من لساني يفقه كولي الحمد لله this evening the third day of the month of Ramadan and we continue in our review of chapter number 48 of the Holy Quran, Surah Al-Fat, the chapter of the opening, the chapter of the victory. Uh, yesterday, we were looking at the peace treaty of Hudaybiyah, what it meant for the Muslim community and what it also means for us generally today. Uh, and we ended off at a point where we looked at Allah giving four different gifts to Rasulullah. I'm not going to repeat them. You can go back and if you want to watch the YouTube videos, if you miss them, they're available online. So yesterday we looked at uh, verses number two and three, four of the gifts which Allah gave to the beloved Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wasallam. And tonight in verse number four, we're just going to look at one verse this evening. We're going to look at a, great, a gift and not just a gift, but a great gift which was given to the believers by Allah azza wa jal. So yesterday were gifts given to Rasulullah. Today we're looking at a gift which Allah conferred upon the believers, upon the mu'mineen, those who were at the time of Rasulullah. And so let's go straight to the verse for tonight, verse number four, where Allah says, أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ بِسْمِ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمِ هُوَ الَّذِي أَنزَلَ السَّكِينَةَ فِي قُلُوبِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ لِيَزْدَادُوا إِيمَانًا مَا إِيمَانِهِمْ وَلِلَّهِ جُنُودُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَاللَّهُ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ رَاذِرْ عَلِيمًا حَكِيمًا Allah says in verse number 4 that it is He, Allah, it is who has sent down His gift of inner peace and reassurance, Sakina, into the hearts of the believers so that they might add faith, their iman, to their faith. And to Allah belongs the armies of the heavens and the earth and Allah is all-knowing, all-wise. So as I said that this verse we're going to look at tonight is where Allah is talking about the descent about the inzal, about bringing upon the hearts of the believers something that he calls sakina. Sakina is literally, if you want to translate in very kind of a rough terminology, is inner peace, tranquility, uh, you know, a calm heart, a calm mind. And not only was Allah giving the believers sakina, this tranquility, after this entire episode of Hudaybiyah, but he was saying, Allah says that one of the benefits of the sakina, of this tranquility, as he says, Yazdadu imanan ma'a imanihim, that this would aid in their iman, their faith, and their being added to their faith. So there being kind of a progression in their belief and in their conviction of Allah through Allah giving them sakina or this tranquility. And then interestingly enough, Allah says, to Allah belongs the junood, the armies of the heavens and the earth. Meaning that everything in existence, and we look at this briefly, what it means in more detail, but everything is in the power and domain of Allah. Everything which is in the skies, which is in the heavens, which is outside of the atmosphere of earth. We can also translate the 
word samawat as everything outside of Earth's atmosphere. Allah says all of that belongs to Him, whatever is out there and whatever is on Earth. And as Allah says that He is all-knowing, He's Alim, and He's also all-wise. He's also Hakim. Now, one of the first questions we want to try and answer is why would Allah speak about the gift of inner peace and tranquility? Previously, Allah gave the Prophet, for example, the forgiveness, and He gave the Prophet the ability to stay on the right path. He gave the Rasul all of these multiple gifts that we saw in verses 2 and 3. But why would now the, the, we can say that the, the tone will change, or the gift that Allah is giving to the believers is something different, that it becomes the gift of inner peace and tranquility. So in order for us to really better appreciate this gift that Allah is giving, the gift that God is giving of tranquility, the gift of inner peace to the Muslims of that time. Right? We have to go back 1400 years to the sixth year after the migration. As I talked about last night, we looked at the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. This is just a brief overview that um, in Medina, in the sixth year after the migration, the Prophet has a dream. And as I mentioned, the dreams of the Prophets are reality-based. They're not just things that they see out of the blue that they come from God as revelation. So the Prophet has a dream that him and the Muslims are going to Mecca and they're performing the Umrah, they're walking into the city of Mecca. He tells the companions this dream, the companions listen to the Prophet, they obviously accept him as a messenger of Allah, the messenger of God, so they, you know, they go with it. So around 1400 or so Muslims get ready for Umrah, they get their ihram ready, they take their sacrificial animal with them. As we mentioned, they get to about anywhere from 20 to 60 kilometers outside of Mecca. The representative from the Quraysh comes to the Prophet and he says, you know what, you guys cannot enter Mecca this year. And because the Messenger of Allah is a man of peace, he doesn't instigate wars, the Prophet never, started, never starts a war. There had a, a negotiation, so Abu Sufyan, sends a uh, representative, Suhaib, to be the representative of the Quraysh, and the Prophet obviously is there with Imam Ali, peace be upon him. And this dream of the Prophet, which was to enter Mecca, is basically curtailed. It's, it's stopped short, 20, 30, 40 kilometers outside of Mecca. Now, you know, put ourselves, we have to really put ourselves, brothers and sisters, in the feet of the companions, right? Imagine these are companions who have been with the Prophet maybe from the days of Mecca. So 13, 14, 15, 20 years they've been with the Prophet. 19 years with the Prophet. Some maybe are new converts to Islam. They know the Messenger of Allah would not, the Messenger of Allah would never lie or tell an untruth. They know Allah is always truthful in His promises. They've gotten ready from Medina. They've got the ihram. They brought their animals. They've prepared mentally and spiritually to walk into Mecca, perform the Umrah, and then head back home. They've traveled hundreds of kilometers on foot or on the animal. And now they are having this peace treaty imposed upon them. Now one level they're in that state of you know, um, perplexity that the Prophet saw a dream. Why aren't we entering into Mecca today? That's what the dream of the Prophet was. Little did they know that it didn't mean that year it was Allah telling them that something would happen, but they presumed it, and maybe rightfully so, they presumed that it would be that year. So now they're dealing with a peace treaty that the Prophet has to sign. 
right? And it wasn't only the treaty itself, right? We talked about the four main things that they could not go into Mecca that year in the sixth year after the migration. They would be allowed to come the following year, but only three days maximum in Mecca they could spend. Um, they couldn't bring weapons with them, obviously, because Mecca is a sacred ground. Anyways, you're not allowed to carry weapons into the city of Mecca and, and, and in Masjid al-Haram. The condition was that if anybody in Mecca became a Muslim and they fled to Medina, they had to be actually forcefully sent back to Mecca. And this didn't make sense to the Muslims, to the companions. A, Muslim, a, a, a person in Mecca is becoming Muslim. He wants to go and live in the, state of, in the city of Medina with the Prophet and the other companions. But the peace treaty was strict. It said, no, if that person left Mecca to go to Medina, he had to be taken back to Mecca. Right? Except for the women. If a woman converted to Islam, she was free because there are obviously unique rules between in Islam for men and women because the genders are different, different roles, different responsibilities. Women were be allowed to leave and they do not have to be sent back. But this and many other of the conditions were very heavy on the hearts of the companions to accept. And even in, we know that when the peace treaty was being written, where the Prophet asked Imam Ali to be the official scribe, Imam Ali begins with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Suhaib from the side of the Quraysh says, look, we don't believe in your God, Allah, to be Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim. So you begin the document with Bismikallahumma, in your name, O the high God, or in your name, O God. So the Prophet said, you know what, let's give them that. We'll remove Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, Bismikallahumma, we'll start the peace treaty. Then the Imam Ali begins to write, from Muhammad Rasulullah, and again, Suhaib says, wait, we don't accept Muhammad as the messenger of Allah. If we believed him to be the prophet, we wouldn't be in war with you people for the last 18, 19 years. So scratch off Rasulullah and just write from Muhammad ibn Abdullah, the son of Abdullah. So as difficult as it was, and there's a difference of opinion, some historians say that Imam Ali could not bring himself to remove Rasulullah. And so out of a level of adab, of respect, Imam Ali de declined. So some hadith say that the Prophet took the pen and he asked Imam Ali, where is it said Rasulullah? And he scratched it out himself according to some opinions. Whatever the case may be, they removed Rasulullah, they removed the Basmala. And now the companions are you know, looking at this, that the whole treaty doesn't make sense to them in their viewpoint and you know let me just mention even for us as, as believers today that a lot of times things happen in the world things happen in Muslim society and communities and our scholars will give us certain rulings and it won't make sense to us many times right we'll question the religious authorities even of our era and I'm not saying our religious scholars are infallible and immaculate that they can't make mistakes but when we put those people and we accept them to be in positions of leadership and authority, we have to accept that they know the bigger picture. You know, we live in Canada, we're in Saskatoon, for example. We don't know what happens in the Muslim world. Right? Our concept of Islam is just what is within this province or within this city. But when our religious authorities give rulings, they're looking at Islam at a global level, right? From the African continent, to Asia, to the Far East, to Europe, to North America. So they're looking at Islam from a what much wider gambit than we are. We're very narrow in our reviews. So we can say similar with the companions, not disrespecting them, but they only knew Islam in Medina.
They didn't know what was happening in, in Ethiopia or in Persia or you know, anywhere on the, uh, on the Arabian Peninsula. They knew Medina. That was pretty much it. But the Messenger of Allah, his, because we believe that he gets access to knowledge of the unseen from Allah when he needs it, we would, you know, we say that his view was not just, you know, that day in Mecca or Medina. It was looking at Islam at a global level. It was looking at Islam not only in the sixth year of the migration, but what will happen in the years to come. So the Prophet had to, and I mentioned, uh, I think, six different positive outcomes of the peace treaty of Hudaybiyah last night, and I won't repeat those. But Prophet was looking at everything that would come out of the result of signing a peace treaty, even if it meant having to give in, to remove the name of Allah from the document. Okay, not a big deal. The, the goal and the, and the aim of Islam is much greater than just the name of Allah on a piece of paper. Yeah, the Prophet had to remove Rasulullah. But again, he's still Rasulullah in the sight of Allah, so it makes no difference. His companions still know him as the messenger, the final messenger of Allah. So if his name isn't on a document, it's not a big deal for him. He's not in it for the name or the fame or the popularity. It's to get the goal done. And that goal is for the, as the Quran says, right? That the word of Allah needs to be elevated. Whatever happens to the believers, it doesn't make a difference. And that's our viewpoint as well. That should be our point of view. That Islam is what takes precedence, not our name, not our country, our tribal affiliation, you know, not anything about our personal life. If we have to sacrifice our lives for the religion of Islam to be, you know, put forward, then that's what we have to do. And this is even the viewpoint of our, many of our ulama, right? Many of our great scholars, when they were put into a position to implement Islam in the society and their people of their community would tell them that, you know, this goes against our cultural norms, they would basically say, well, to hell with our cultural norms. Islam is what we're after. Right? The Prophet didn't fight for Arabs or the Quraysh. The Prophet fought for Islam, for the Quran. And we, brothers and sisters, have to have that same mindset that it shouldn't be because my Pakistani, Afghani, Iraqi, Irani, Canadian culture does this, I have to do it like this in my center in Canada. No, we leave our culture at the door, actually. When we come to a center, a Muslim center in Canada, we have to recognize that we're multicultural, multi-ethnic, and that we try and practice Islam in a multi-ethnic way. Not that, okay, back home we did it like this. Well, that's great for back home. If you want that, then go back home. Maybe if you're in a multi-ethnic society and you establish a multi-ethnic community, then we have to recognize the fact that we need to be multi-ethnic in our administration and how we work with one another as well. So these six things happen. And hopefully this makes sense why Allah says, Because the companions have been so, maybe if I, if I can say depressed, upset at what the Quraysh had done, they were maybe upset at how the Prophet had to give all of this, you know, had to really, you know, step back and not maybe be so assertive as they wanted him to be, I could say. And so Allah had to send Sakina on the companions to reassure them that, look, what happened in Hudaybiyah, what happened by you not being able to make the Umrah, it's okay, don't worry about it. 
things will change, right? Right when Allah said in verse number one, Inna fatahna laka fathan mubina, we've given you the clear victory. That doesn't mean that right then and there that victory would happen, right? It, it would take, and it only took five years because this treaty of Hudaybiyah is year six. The Fatah of Mecca, the victory of opening of Mecca was in the year 11, or not even 11, sorry, eight after the Hijrah. So two years it took for the Fatah, this manifest victory to come about. And then obviously from there, we know that Islam spread through the Arabian Peninsula. As we mentioned that the Prophet was able to write letters to different emissaries, to Ethiopia, to the Roman Empire, to the Persian Empire. These were people now that were coming into Islam. So the victory was becoming manifest day after day. Again, Rasulullah, based on the guidance given to him by Allah, had that forward vision of the community, of the Ummah. He wasn't worried about, okay, we can't make Umrah. Big deal, it's not a big, it's not a big issue. And that's why the Prophet told the companions, Slaughter the animals you brought as you, have you, as you had, would have done if you went for Umrah. Shave your head as you would have done for the Umrah. Come out of the Ihram as you would have done if you had done the Umrah. And Allah has accepted our act of worship. We didn't make it to Umrah, but Allah will accept it. So we also, brothers and sisters, have to look again at our lives like this. That we may not always win the battle, but what matters is to keep our eyes on the prize. Right? We want to win the war. No, not a war of jihad, <laughs> we pick up weapons. No, I mean a war of the hearts, right? A war of winning the hearts and minds of the people out there who look at Islam in a, in a, in a negative way, who don't give the Prophet the respect that he's due, right? who will stoop to no level, to stoop, you know, who will stoop to drawing caricatures and making silly videos of the prophets. No, we have to keep our eyes on the big picture, on the prize that. We need to elevate the name of Islam, but it won't come through, you know, things that we see people doing or even some so-called Muslim countries doing. We need to have a better holistic view of Islam and what actually the goal of the religion is. What is the goal that Allah sent this Quran for? And he sent 124,000 prophets for. So two quotations I want to hopefully impress in our hearts today in this month of Ramadan is that when a person has true faith, when we have true iman, there's no tribulation that is too great. Right? Because at the end of the day, Allah is the greatest. Right? Every day in the salat, we say, Allahu Akbar. Allah is the greatest. He's better. He's greater than anything and everything. Right? There is no problem, brothers and sisters, in our lives. And we're all going through tribulation. We're all in a state of ibtala, of being tested by Allah. We're all going through family issues, maybe spousal issues, issues with our children, maybe we have financial issues, the, the uh, inflation is getting to us, we can't pay our bills, all of these challenges we're facing. But who's greater? The economic policy and economic system of the Canadian government or Allah? Allahu Akbar. So when, if we have that true iman, then we'll recognize that whatever difficulties we're going through, it could be worse. We could be today in Afghanistan, in Iraq. We could be in Turkey or Syria where the earthquake hits. Right? What could be worse than that? Right? We're facing a little bit of difficulty today, but again, keep the eyes on the prize, brothers and sisters. The verse of the Quran says, imanan ma'a imanihim, That their faith may increase. 
This beautiful hadith that we have from the sixth Imam, Imam Jafar as Sadiq, may God's peace and blessings be upon him. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. In which the Imam has been quoted as saying that certainly Iman or faith has 10 levels. Now, it doesn't mean exactly 10. Many times in the Quran and Hadith, numbers are used in a metaphorical sense. But the Imam says certainly faith has 10 levels like the, like, like the rungs of a ladder or a staircase. Where each rung is, where, like the rungs of a ladder, where each rung is climbed one after the other. So our Iman is a continuous process of progression. The Imam says the one on the second rung must not say to the one on the first rung, you are nothing. And so let him continue progressing until he completes his faith and reaches to the 10th level. Look, we're all, all of us in this room, brothers and sisters, every Muslim in the world today, we are all at different levels of Iman. We're all at different levels of submission to God. Some of us are maybe at level 10. Some of us may have been Muslims our whole life, but we're still struggling with the basics of religion. We should never de you know, downgrade or downplay or, or uh, you know, make fun of another believer or question their submission because we don't know where they're at. And look what the sixth Imam says in the second part of the hadith. Therefore, do not knock the one below you down, lest the one above you knocks you down. So you see a woman who doesn't wear hijab and you begin to insult her. What are you doing like this? Haram. You're going to go to hell. You're going to burn. Meanwhile, what about you? You know, you're no, you're no angel walking the earth. You've got your own shortcomings. Be respectful. Help the individual, that believing man or woman. Pull them up another level if they're struggling to surrender. And the Imam says this, when you see one below you in rank, lift him or her up to the level with gentleness. Right? Treat one another with love and gentleness. As Muslims, we have to be gentle with one another. Right? The Quran says, Muhammadun Rasulullah, walladina ma'ahu. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad. That when you're with the Prophet, you are strong. You have a firm determination against the disbelievers, but you're merciful to one another. And so the Imam says, do not burden your fellow brother with that which they cannot bear, lest you break him or her. For verily one who breaks a believer must put him back together again. How are you going to fix somebody's Iman when you completely shatter their devotion to God by questioning their submission. You have to go and fix that problem. But how are you going to fix it when you've destroyed a believer? It's a difficult task to accomplish. Another quote I want to leave us with, and we'll conclude in the next couple of minutes uh, because Maghrib is coming up in a few minutes, is that the true believer must never remain stagnant in our spiritual progression, and we need to continuously ascend the ladder of faith, of Iman. How do we make it up that ladder of faith or iman? It's through self-purification. Ramadan is one of those ways. It's through knowledge of Islam, studying the deen from the right sources, from the right authorities, and practice what you preach. Don't be like the Quran says, لِمَا تَكُولُونَ مَا لَا تَفْعَلُونَ Yet you say something, but you don't follow through and act upon it. The last part of the verse is where Allah says, وَلِلَّهِ جُنُودُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَلِيمًا حَكِيمًا And to Allah belong the armies of the heavens and the earth, and Allah is all-knowing, all-wise. Two points I want to leave us with. 
is that one is if you are with Allah, if we are with Allah and the Prophet, obviously, then we have to realize that no one can harm us because Allah controls everything. We say that every day, لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله. There is no power, no authority, no, no strength in this world, there's no superpower except for Allah. He is the only superpower in this world. No matter if the odds are stacked against us, brothers and sisters, or our countries back home, the fact is, is that Allah has all the power. Allah controls the entire armies of the skies and the earth. And because Allah is all-knowing and all-wise, Alim and Hakim, He knows our challenges. He knows what each and every person in this room is going through. He knows our dua before we make the dua. He knows our challenges before we open up our hearts and we cry to Him on our prayer mat in the middle of the night. And so whatever efforts we put forth, brothers and sisters, rest assured that they will come to fruition. Right? The Sahaba, again, they went to... Umrah, they were prevented. It took two years for Fatah of Makkah to happen. So a lot of times our du'as will not happen overnight. right? They will take years sometimes for our du'as to materialize. But don't think Allah forgot you. As long as we continuously remember Allah and continue to make the du'a to Allah, then we will get the, the, the response from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala.